I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we take a brief break from current events coverage to discuss something a little bit more lighthearted. We go back to my love of horror movies. It's a Halloween hangover edition of Parallax Views as we're joined by Dennis Daniel, author of the new book. The Horror, The Horror, a film fanatic's obsession with the cinema of the macabre. Dennis has also contributed to such publications as Cinema Macabre, Deep Red, and Delirium Magazine, run by our friend Chris Alexander. We'll be talking about his love of obscure horror, the tape trading underground, and the story of how Charlie Sheen mistook an underground Japanese horror film for being a snuff movie. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Dennis Daniel. Just in time for the spooky season, it's Parallax Views. We're getting ready for Halloween, and I have a really awesome guest for the spooky season. Dennis Daniel, author of The Horror, The Horror. A film fanatic's obsession with the cinema of the macabre. He took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And also a contributor to uh, Deep Red... Oh, yeah. Good old Deep Red. Been writing for them for 40 years. And Cinema Macabre. Brand, and new, also, brand new magazine. Brand new magazine. I'm exactly. Editing. Yeah. And also writes for Delirium. We just had Chris Alexander on, who helped contribute to The Horror, The Horror. So 
Chris uh, Alexander. You know. Chris Alexander wrote the beautiful uh, introduction. That when I read it, it made me weep. He <laughs> said uh, one of the I actually quoted it in the back. He says these pages. They are Dennis's skin. The ink is his blood. The binding his body, and the words his soul. Wow. What more can you say? You know, <laughs> I encapsulated it all in like a sentence. So, Dennis, maybe you can give my listeners a background on how you got involved with what's known as the horror movie community, because, uh, you know, you're one of the people that I think has kept a certain type of horror movie alive, the Euro cult horror and things like that. You Yourself, along with Chris, Chas Ballin, rest in peace, and a few others. Yes, my good buddy Chas, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's because the Euro horror movies are so, are we allowed to curse? They're so fucking great. <laughs> I mean, you can't beat them. You know, they, they don't make them like this anymore, bro. They don't make movies like that anymore. They are so indicative of a time and place in the world. And they're, they just, oh, they bring me so much joy. But uh, to answer your question, um, I got involved in a kind of, roundabout way. I, uh, I've i had a long career in uh, media. Uh, I was on the radio on Long Island for over 35 years. Uh, I work in advertising. I'm a writer, producer, and a director, and a voiceover artist, and all that stuff. So I've always been involved in this, and I've done acting. I've done singing. I've done all kinds of, I've done voices for cartoons, all kinds of really cool stuff. So I was working at the time. I was in my early 20s, and I was working at WBAB, Babylon, uh, Long Island, which was a rock station, uh, the coolest rock station in the world. And um, there was uh, I was there as a producer. I was the guy who did all the commercials and all the promos. And I did comedy and I did voices. And it was it was wonderful. And uh, also I was a disc jockey. Now, with uh, radio stations, you need to do public service. So, uh, you know, every Sunday, a certain amount of time was dedicated to public service. So we had a show called People, Places and Things. And it was just a show it could be about anything, but it was just a public service show. And a lot of us hosted it. I wasn't the only host. So at that particular time in the early 80s was that resurgence of horror, the, the, the tail end of the 70s, you know, I mean, the Evil Dead and Friday the 13th and Halloween with Halloween 78. But all of those films started and then, you know, it got even crazier with like Reanimator and, and, and that whole ilk. So I was really into this because I'd loved horror all my life. And uh, I was an avid reader of Fangoria. So one time in Fangoria, uh, they used to have like a little section where they would highlight something cool. And they were highlighting Chaz Balin's little pamphlet that he self-published called The Gore Score. And it was this really great article about how wonderful this was. So I'm like, man, I want to I want to talk to this guy, you know, so through channels. I eventually got through to him and I asked him to be a guest on the show. And so he was more than thrilled. He was just getting started back then. He was more than thrilled. And, uh, and uh, he came on the show. 
Uh, and like what happens with me with a lot of people that I interview, we become friends. It's because when you're uh, kindred spirits, you know, when you're in the same sort of mindset and and universe, you you know, you tend to really connect to people. And I'm a fan, number one. You know, fuck that, you know, journalism shit. I'm a fan. I write like a fan. I talk like a fan. You know, uh, that's just the way it is. And 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 I and that enthusiasm is a different kind of writing. It's not analytic. You know, it's not. It doesn't break it down into its sociological implications. It's like to me, it's like its fucking head explodes. It's great. You know, I mean, like oh, I'm a fan. So we got along really well on this conversation. And Chaz was great, too, because he was the quintessential New York hippie. Dude, I mean, you know, talk like this, dude. That was really great, really great interview we did, Dennis. You know, really great, dude. I mean, it was just, uh. <laughs> I was going to say, I've always heard Chaz was like the hippie that liked gory movies. People think that's it like is. an oxymoron, but I don't think it is. Yeah, he was a six foot four, six foot five hippie who loved gory movies. I got this great picture of him with these two knives against me. I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, uh, but uh, when I went to visit him in California, he had these gigantic machetes. I'll send you the picture. These gigantic machetes that he, you know, and he's standing behind me and he has these two machetes across my neck. And I'm like, you know, because Chaz is like, He's like totally behind me this time, you know. But anyway, so yeah, so we hit it off. All right. So we became friends. And uh, not too long after that, he asked me if I would like to write for this new magazine he was doing called Deep Red. Now, I had done writing. I had actually already written a book. I used to write about radio. I had a column called Tales of the tape that was in a lot of the radio trade publications. You cut you know? out there. You said and it was I was called about Tales of the what Tape? What it was like with the creep. Tales of the Tape, yes. It actually, I always love long titles. So the actual full title of the book was Tales of the Tape, A Production Director's Odyssey, or How I Survived and Stayed Creative in an Industry That Eats Its Young. <laughs> so anyway, so, uh, you know, I... I know what it's like, to, you know, I know what it's like to write to the masses, so to speak. I mean, I was already doing creative work anyway, but as a writer, I had developed my own style. And the, the way I developed my style, believe it or not, was from Harlan Ellison. Do you know who Harlan Ellison was? Yes, I've, I've done shows about Harlan's work. I'm a big fan of, uh, I have no mouth, but I must scream. He's one of the great oh, sci-fi yeah, well, writers. Well, Harlan was a pal of mine. He was you were a, friends with Harlan Ellison? Abs yeah. Oh, Yeah. Was he yeah. as cantankerous in real life as he is in his interviews? <laughs> JG, he was a sweetheart. I I adored Harlan. I adored Harlan. I'll, I'll that's another thing. I'll send you a picture of me and Harlan. I used to go to Harlan. I used to go to Ellis in Wonderland all the time. I would hang out with him at his castle. It was great. Anyway, I, I digress. Uh, so, um, so I started. So writing was not an e was not a difficult thing for me. Like I had already, and Harlan Ellison 
wrote this book called An Edge in My Voice, which was about movies. It was his movie criticism book. And he had such a beautiful way of writing. He wrote from the top of his head and he had a way of expressing himself that I really liked. So I said, I want to adopt that same attitude, not his style, but his attitude. Harlan wrote from the heart as well. Harlan wrote as a film fan, not as a professor of film studies, you know. So anyway, uh, so I said, hey, why don't I call the, I could call the column, uh, here's blood in your eye. Said, that's great, dude, that's great. So that's how it started. I started writing for Deep Red. Now, as I was writing for Deep Red, Chaz's star was rising. And, you know, uh, it became a phenomenon of its time. It was a tremendous hit. There are so, I meet so many people to this day that go, you're Dennis Daniel from Deep Red? You know, it's weird, you know, because I'm I'm 63. When I did that, I was like in my early 30s or younger even. I don't know. Yeah. No, how old was I? I was 26. Holy shit. Oh, okay, wow. Well, anyway, so um, that's well, how it real, started. Real quick, so, so with Chas Ballin, I, I don't know if people know this, but – I mean, he was friends with like people like Chris Gore, and you know, there's that old Chris Gore about, is also one of my one yeah, of my yeah. But I, I was gonna say, there's that old chestnut about you know, this is how Charlie Sheen ended up seeing a copy of Guinea Pig Two. Oh, well, you know the story blood. behind that too. That's that's all my fault too. You know. Well, I want to hear the story. So, for people that don't know, Guinea Pig Flesh, uh, Flower of Flesh and Blood is this like Japanese gore film. It's basically a decapitation movie. Really, you know it. Uh, people talk well, about it's, torture it's porn. more than that. It's it what it is is it's it's about I think it's around seven different short little films that are all very very twisted and very very gory. Right, right, very, right. very you know. So, but, I you was going to say it, it makes something like Saw seem tame. You know, <laughs> it makes Saw seem like Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farms. But but uh, what do you call it? You know, they had the the, the one with the mermaid. That that's a really crazy one too. Yeah, mermaid and a man. Guy finds a mermaid yeah. and puts it in his bathtub, and she slowly deteriorates. But that was very clever, actually. I mean, that wasn't just gore for gore's sake. That was a story. But anyway, getting back to uh, guinea pig. So, this is a great story. If you want, I'll tell this story. Um, so Chaz tells me about guinea pig. You know, oh, this dude, I saw this at son, but papa be. I says, well, I got to see it, obviously, right? So Chaz mails me a copy of Guinea Pig. So I had another friend of mine who was into horror movies, and he came over my house, and the two of us sat down, and we started watching it, okay? And as you know, the first one is about this guy that likes to dress as a samurai, and it starts with him kidnapping a girl, bringing him back to his little torture chamber where he proceeds to cut off her arms, cut off her legs, cut off her head. I mean, like, with in between with shots of him going, you know, you don't know what he's saying, but it's just, you know, that whole Japanese eerie extreme horror thing on video, no less. So I'm sitting there with my friend watching it and we're like watching the movie and we're like this. You're giving the what the fuck expression for people I, listening to the audio version. Like, it was like, 
why are we watching this? What the fuck is wrong with us? What are we doing watching this? I mean, it's a story. It's just watch a woman get, you know, disassembled before your eyes. But the thing was, it was so real. It was very, very real. All right. We never even finished it. I shut it. I said, I don't want to see anymore. Do you want to see anymore? I don't want to see anymore. All right, I'm done. Okay. Now, Chris Gore is a friend of mine. I wrote for Film Threat for many years. And I met Chris once again. I met him through loving Film Threat, getting in contact with him, interviewing him, and we became pals. As a matter of fact, it's Chris Gore, who's to my immediate right in Night of the Living Dead, uh, in Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead, in the scene that we're in. He's the zombie right over here. Uh, I, I, I was friends with Tom Savini, and through, I asked Tom if Chris could come. So Chris was there because we were pals. It was a lot of fun. A couple of people came, too. Also the cartoonist Gay and Wilson, who was also a very dear friend of mine. I got him in the movie. He's got a couple of good scenes, too. He gets a torch in his face. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. All right, so I'm done with this thing. And so I'm talking to Gore. Hey, Gore, you want to you wanna see something really fucking depraved, dude? I mean, Chaz sent me this thing. It's really fucked up. And uh, this is in the days when you held the phone. You know, it was really just, oh, God. So I send it to Chris. Chris watches it. And then Chris gives it to a friend of his. He passes it on. And this friend just so happened to be friends with Nicolas Cage. So he ends up watching it with Nicolas Cage. Right? No, not Nicolas Cage. What am I saying? No, Charlie, I get them confused. Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen. They're the same to me. You know, yeah, Charlie Sheen. So he watches it with Charlie Sheen. Fucking Charlie Sheen of all fucking people. You know? this the, A bastion of morality is Charlie Sheen. You know, give me a break, right? So anyway, so... He watches it with the and Charlie Sheen says, this is real. This is real. This isn't fake. This is real. So Charlie Sheen calls a friend of his at the fucking FBI. Next thing you know, my phone's ringing. Hello? Uh, Dennis Daniel? Yes. Uh, this is Agent, I'll never forget his name. This is Agent Dan Codling from the FBI. Uh, we're calling in reference to a videotape that you sent to California. Well, uh, we are investigating it because it looks like it's a real snuff film, and that is a federal offense. Uh, you could be serving 25 years in jail if we find out that this is indeed a real snuff film. The expression on your face is priceless. <laughs> what? You know? <laughs> And I'll never forget, I called Chaz, and it was his birthday, and he was all fucked up when I called him. And I said, Chaz, I'm sorry to tell you this, blah, 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 the FBI, yada, 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 yada. And he's like, dude, don't worry about it, man. Didn't you watch the whole tape? No. At the end of the tape is a whole documentary on how they do everything. They show you the special effects. They show you everything. So fuck him, man. I'm, I'm going to assume Charlie Sheen was too coked out to see that part. <laughs> well, the bottom line is, bottom line is, okay, that 
there is indeed a documentary called The Making of Guinea Pig. It shows how they did everything. It shows that the woman is just fine and nothing happened. But I didn't see it. To, I didn't watch it all the way to the end. And I'll never forget when Agent Dan Codling called me up again and said, well, yes, we found out that it's fake. He goes, but I just want you to know some of the things in there are real. Thanks, Agent Dan. As long as I'm not going to jail for 25 years, have a great day. But, you know. That was it was a wild time. That was it's like just, the Wild West. I mean, and it's dude. been written and it's been written about so many times. The guinea pig story has been told so many times. My friend Steve Bissett, the cartoonist, Swamp Thing, and so many other things, he he knows even more of the story. I'll never forget. I was at a convention with him, and uh, I told the story to the crowd, you know, and I said, "Well, that you know, I did the Dan Codling, and that's it, and that was the end of it." And then Bissett went, "Oh no, it wasn't." And and I and I don't remember what the rest of it was. I don't remember. <laughs> well, I, I was gonna say this really was like I I wasn't alive for it. So I I you got alive into, for it. Thanks, thanks for making me feel so. Ah, uh, yeah, I feel bad. Well, so I got into this stuff in the two thousands uh, through a guy named Andy Cop who did Night Crew Video, and he made some movies like The Mutilation Man. But he was into that whole tape trading scene, right? Oh, but he was doing it, it from was Ohio. Huge. It was huge, bro. Yeah, and yeah. It, it was crazy time because, you know, now huge. you can almost get your hands on everything. Back then it was like, crazy. oh, you're it's, getting it's an eighth-generation dupe just to see Last House on the uh, end of the uh, – Last House on Dead End Street, you know. And, and well, at the you, time you, you would you think said, to you, yourself – you see that in the book? I talk about that in the book. I talk about that very thing. Yeah, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that, about how crazy the tape trading scene was. Because in a weird way, I could understand why someone would watch an eighth generation dupe of Last House on Dead End Street and be like, oh, this could be a snuff film. Because you're, you're seeing it in such a diluted, weird way. A tenth generation, you know, a tenth generation dub of Necromantic. Right. <laughs> Definitely looks real at that point. The freaking thing looked real the way he shot it, you know? let alone a 10th generation dub. Um, so what, you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, what, what was the tape well, trading you know, scene like? You see, <laughs> here's where we get into like um, me saying the typical, stereotypical things older people say. Ah, you know, those were the days. These kids today don't know what it's like. They got everything they wanted to push. They take out their phone. They can push a button, and, and it's all there, and everything's there, you know. Yeah, that is the way it is, you know. Uh, but back then, it was like gold. It was like, I mean, you heard about all of these films that now come out from Vinegar Syndrome or Severin or Arrow or 88 Films or, you know, in 4K, pristine cop. I mean, it's incredible. Right. There, there was a time, though, right? Like when, you know, I love Argento movies, but there was a time where it was really hard to get like an uncut copy of Phenomena. You'd get or Suspiria. Or, Suspiria, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was a it was a very cool time. You know, my 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 big tape trading buddy was Steve Bissett, though. He had every fucking thing. He had everything. You know, he had the he had the cut of combat shock. That was American Nightmares before they changed it to combat shock. Like, How the fuck did you get that? Even Buddy, the director, didn't have it. I mean, it was like 
Buddy Sane, where'd you find that? <laughs> so, yeah, we saw a lot of stuff. But the other thing, too, beside the trading was the, uh, you know, the, the, the small video houses like Sinister Cinema and Video Search of Miami, of all names in the world, where they advertised in all of the in all of the fanzines and in all of the you know they even advertised in some of the bigger publications and you could get anything from them they had dubs of everything you know uh and uh that's how i first got into jean roland the great french horror film fantasist i mean he's so much more than horror movies but i you know i would see these stills from his did, did you ever see the grapes of death I have not seen the grapes of death, although I'm a big fan of um I love Night of the Hunted and also I love Fascination. That movie blew my mind when I saw it. You have to see his whole you have to see everything. You have to see Yeah, everything. it's like a it's he, very his films are very haunting, you know. He's like the Jean Cocteau of horror. Uh if you know who Jean Cocteau is, most people know him. He's most famous for the 1946 version, French version of Beauty and the Beast which is a pretty well-known film. He was a poet, really. He did one of the first avant-garde films called The Blood of a Poet. And the thing is just this wild, crazy freaking thing, you know. Uh, but uh, he had the heart. Ro Roland had the heart of a poet. And his it's amazing because his work only gets better with time. Because when you watch a Jean Roland film, there's, there's nothing else in the world like it. And it has his stamp on it. You know it's Jean Roland, you know? Yeah, I was going to say in that regard, I'm curious because I know you approach this from a, you're like a hardcore fan, but in recent years, I think a lot of these directors are being reevaluated. I know a lot of people that go to like art, sc art school in New York, especially women that are like these art school girls that love Jean Roland. And he's even influenced like certain you know, writers now. Uh, so, oh, without any doubt, without any. I was going to say, even though you don't take it from that film theory perspective, or the people that are interested in, oh, what's the sociology behind these movies? Do you think it's a good thing that these films are being reevaluated within the, I guess, ivory tower? Oh, you know, my only regret when I about it all is that he's not alive to see it. I mean, he was alive long enough that he went to a couple of conventions and he saw how much he was adored. So Jean Roland knows that he was adored, but not to the level that he is now. And uh, just recently, Indicator, which is another one of these companies, has been putting out these astonishing, beautiful new 4K transfers of his films in box sets. Right now they have Night of the Hunted, Two uh two virgin vampires, um uh, uh lips of blood is coming out in, in a little bit, uh, uh the rape of the vampire and the shiver of the vampires and fascination. They're all four of them are out already, and the others are coming out, and they're so beautiful that I I literally was crying watching them because they're just so beautiful, they're so unique. And they're so, they are horror, fantasy, poetry. 
And it's all sifted through Rollins' way of looking at the email. Like, for example, most of his films always have two girls. There's the two girls. Even had the, these twins that appeared in a couple of the films that really sort of beautiful, but also very strange. Like Barbara Steele is really beautiful, but she also had that strange thing going on, you know? Uh, so uh, his films are... Uh, I couldn't recommend them highly enough to anybody that wants to try and 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 experience something new. They are definitely not mainstream. You see, you got to have patience to watch a poetic film. If all you're thinking about is Jason and and Michael Myers, forget it. You know, uh, but if you're into loving uh, film, because I, I as much as I love horror. I consider myself a cinephile. I adore all cinema. You know, I studied cinema in college. So, Jesus, you smoke more than Jess Franco. Uh. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to say, yeah, I, I'm just looking it up. I, I know a few years back there was a um, Norwegian artist uh, who's also a writer, uh, Jenny Havel, who did a whole concept album based around the films of Jean Roland. It was called. Wow, Blood I Bitch. didn't even know that. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, but she's sort of for that like highbrow artsy crowd, and it's kind of interesting. I think Roland is someone that you know it, it, you can't put it in that highbrow lowbrow category because there is something poetic about his work. He is he is a genre in and of himself. There is no one, no one like Jean Roland. The closest you could find to Jean Roland's. Um, I guess you could say uh, need to be constantly making movies is Jess Franco. And, you know, there's this one film called Zombie Lake that Jess Franco started and Jean Roland finished. So there is a, a a weird sort of symmetry between the two of them in one film. It's awful film, but, you know, it, you know, is the two of them. Uh, it's so another- weird because I've talked, I've tried to introduce a lot of my audience. Whenever I do movie shows, uh, especially on Halloween, I always end up coming back to Jess Franco. And yes. I've had some listeners that will come back to me and be like, I don't get it. They'll watch like one or two of his films. And I'm like, no, you have to watch like all 200 or whatever it is. Like, because once you start watching his films back to back, they start to blend together in this like really phantasmagoric way. They become uh, like this dream. And you can tell, you know, th- he's often working with lower budgets, especially in the later films. But this is a guy who really loved film. And, you know, Chris Alexander said to me earlier today, he was really like a jazz musician making movies. Yeah. 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 Chris Alexander, one of my favorite people in the world. Adore Chris. Just love him to death. He and I are like brothers, really. Very close. But anyway, uh, so getting on Jess Franco for a moment. um, Tim Lucas from Video Watchdog and so many other publications and books and everything once said that uh, you haven't seen a Jess Franco film until you've seen them all. Uh, But... uh, I don't know how to describe it, JG. Uh, there are there are certain things in this world that are designed to turn on buttons for certain people, you know. And if you're a cinephile and you have a understanding of cinema that goes beyond it just being a form of entertainment to, to while away a couple of hours, which is what it is for most people, you know, uh, 
we are a, a niche, the fans, the cinephiles, the crazed ones. Well, you know, my first experience with Jess Franco was female vampire, which was that is, one of the ones he did with Soledad? No, Soledad sadly was gone by then. This okay, yeah, yeah. I, they, I get confused at times. I'm, I'm not like a scholar of Franco, but this is uh, this is Lena Romay, who was right, his, his 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 lover, his other muse, yeah. and, and eventually his his wife or common law wife or whatever. They went together to the end. And the reason why I was joking with you about the smoking was I once spent three hours with Jess and and uh, and Lena uh, doing an interview with them for Psychotronic magazine. And we were in this room and they just chain smoked one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. It was unbelievable. And if you see interviews with Jess Franco on all of the Blu-rays and everything, he's always smoking. Always smoking. Same thing with Lena when they're sitting down to always smoking. So, you know, they actually were lucky. Well, Lena died. She died young, you know, in her 50s, late 50s. Um, I think she was 58 or something. I don't what, what fascinates me, and I'm wondering if you picked up on this, uh, you know, having met both of them, what I always find fascinating, he really loves you know, Lena, he's just so turned on by his wife. It's it's actually adorable because just the way well, he's a voyeur. Yeah, well, they, you know? they they were very they were very sexually free, you know, it, like very counterculture. It, it, it didn't it didn't bother either one of them if they were fucking anybody else or whatever that they were very bohemian in that way, you know. But yes, Jess Franco adored Lena, you know, uh, and uh, so. This film, Female Vampire, is about a countess. She's mute. She doesn't speak. And instead of sucking your blood, when she's giving you a blowjob, she, she wants your semen. So it's not blood, it's semen. And... Uh, it's an absolutely unbelievable movie. It is so beautiful, so well done, and so Jess. It's quintessential Jess. The camera zooms in, the camera zooms out. You know, all that kind of crazy stuff that he did, you know, because he had no budget. So he would do whatever he can to make, make things move around as best as he could, you know. Uh, but when I saw a female vampire, that was it. That was it. Just like with uh, with uh, Jean Roland, when I saw a Requiem for a Vampire, I was done. I was hooked. And th there's nothing like those Roland's movies and those Franco movies, because you know what's weird to me is they often have either a very psychedelic quality to them or just a, almost like an ethereal or dreamlike well, they're, quality. They're, you don't find it anything else. Time. Yeah, bro, they're yeah. products of their time, the 60s, the 70s, the early yeah, 80s. Yeah, well, they were probably tripping themselves. <laughs> yeah, but they're products of the time. That's one of the great things about them is they're time machines. You know, I mean, this was a time where there wasn't video. and They, they kept pumping this stuff out. And, you know, they never, ever thought about it. They didn't think I'm making this movie and it's going to last forever. They made the movie and they said, OK, we got to make another one. We got to make another one. We got to make another one. And they would play in the theater and then they do another one. And then they do another one. And then they do another. I mean, that was just the way it was. You know, and out of that came artistry. 
You know, it, what's so weird is that I own more Jess Franco movies than any other director. Because there's so many, don't. You know, he did over 200 some odd movies. I but, always joke to people real quick. I, I feel like Jess Franco is truly the one director I can say. It's almost like if he couldn't direct a movie, it, it was like not having water or not having air to breathe for him. You, you know, you couldn't, have, you couldn't have put it better. Yeah. He, he lived and breathed cinema. He most certainly did. And I adore him. I love Jess. I love Jess. It was so great. It was such an honor to spend time with him and Lena. And when it was all over, Lena gave me a hug and a kiss. I was like, oh, my God, the female vampire. Oh, my God. You know, but anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, so. Video Watchdog was the start of my seeing what Jess Franco was about and then Female Vampire. But, you know, the thing is that now all these films are coming out. They're finally coming out. They're coming out. They're coming out. They're coming out. I mean, they first came out on DVD. There was a lot of stuff that came out on DVD. And, you know, there also was a lot of bootlegs with Jess Franco. Uh, but uh, the, the the ones that are coming out now are incredible. Uh, another friend that I made uh, during this time was uh, is uh, Stephen Thrower, who wrote two the this thick two books. He's written thick. the best book on uh, uh, Jess Franco Fulci. and 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 Fulci. Yeah, yeah, Jess Franco, two books this thick, uh, and uh, he's in the book. Uh, I interviewed him in my book, uh, and he does a lot of great uh, 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 commentaries and videos. And I love Stephen; he's a great guy. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, that that whole era, it doesn't exist anymore. There's no need for it. The trouble with today is that there's so many choices and so many channels and so many apps and so many movies and so that, you know, there's nothing special anymore. Well, I mean, I have to thank you and, and also people like Steven, uh, because really, I, I think you are the guys that kept these movies alive and you know now they're getting reevaluated in a lot of ways um one thing i wanted to talk about you know you mentioned franco it's interesting to me because i feel like at times there's uh this sort of unexplored nexus between the sort of art house world and the exploitation cinema world you know like franco starts out with stuff like or he gets in with the art house crowd through a movie like Venus and Furs, but he also does these exploitation movies, you know, and there's other movies like that that sort of transverse the boundaries of what's considered art house and what's considered exploitation. The one I always reference is something like Carnival of Souls or uh, Curtis Harrington's Night Tide. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which the horror genre can, it, it's almost like it has no boundaries, no limits, that's very true. That, that's been said very often about horror. Uh, that's why a lot of great directors like, you know, Sam Raimi's a perfect example. You know, he went from directing Evil Dead movies to directing The Wonderful Land of Oz for Disney. I mean, you know, come on, Sam, what are you doing? But but still, uh, the idea is that, yes, uh, there are uh, uh, so many opportunities in horror films uh, and fantasy films, macabre. I like the word macabre because I think it covers a lot more than just horror. You know, macabre is some something that just something's off here. What the hell's going on? Um, but I think that the, uh, uh, the the idea that you could do an art house movie, 
but you don't have to, it, it might not even been there. It might not even been their mindset when they did it. They didn't say, Oh, I think I'll make an art house movie. Herc Harvey didn't think he was making an art house movie when he made Carnival of Souls. You know what I mean? George Romero, they didn't think that they were doing anything but a horror movie. They didn't think about the social ramifications of it all that have been heaped on it ever since. I mean, there probably is a little bit there, but I mean, it's, you know, that film has been analyzed like beyond belief. So, yeah, it is a very open genre. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much, you know. Uh, and getting back to Franco for a second, what you were saying, during the pandemic, when I was working from home for almost two years, a lot of Franco stuff came out. A lot of Franco stuff came out on Blu-ray. And I spent months just watching Franco films so that when I eventually went back to watching regular movies, I thought I was in another universe. Like I said, that's not the way a movie should be. I mean, I got so absorbed in his ethos and his world and his, you know, way of looking at things that, and I loved it because you see, you, you know, you see it's him no matter what the subject matter is. And he's done everything. He's done everything. He even did a musical. He's done everything. Uh, but he, he, he did a movie with Lena about a talking asshole. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. I've seen it. It's incredible. It's fucking the butthole smokes a cigarette in it. It's incredible. I mean, well, you know, he did a lot of porn. He did whatever, you know, like once, you know, when uh, when um, uh, uh, Deep Throat came out and changed the whole face of the world, all of a sudden pornography became chic. Pornography became, you know, like and and all that, you know, all that soft core stuff that those boys were doing for all those years. Because, you know, you watch these films and it's like. There's no penetration, but there's a lot of rubbing and there's a lot of thising and thatting. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that looks pretty close to sex. All right. But and it's actually I like it better because to me, real sex looks like open heart surgery. You know, I mean, how how much do you want to say? I mean, I like seeing the full bodies. I don't need to I don't need to close in on the genitalia. You know what I mean? It's like I don't know. Well, there's nothing exciting to me about that. That's just me. Sure, there's a lot of people out there that love genitalia. But anyway, uh, but you know, they they follow, I mean, Jean Roland, same thing. Tons of porno films. Well, yeah, I think his one of his muses, Bridget LeHay, was a porn star basically in France. She's wonderful. Don't you just love her? And she still looks great. God bless Bridget LeHay. She still looks amazing. I think she's in her 60s, something like that. She's amazing. Yeah. But those are. Yes, those those kinds of artists. And then, of course, there are others that fall into that category of the guys that just made everything like Joe Diamato. If people don't know Joe Diamato, how, how do you describe the avoir, the cinematic avoir of Joe Diamato? Because he's a wild one. Joe Diamato. Well, first of all, let's let's be real here. Just like Franco, just like Roland, Joe Diamato did all kinds of movies, all kinds of movies. He did a movie about Caligula. I mean, he he did all kinds of films. All right. He was the same kind of guy. Just want to keep filming and filming and filming and filming and filming. But when he did horror 
His modus operandi was, I want to take this as far as I can go. You see all this stuff that's happening in America, how far that is, the Friday the 13th, and I'm going to go way beyond that. And he did. He most certainly did. That's one of the reasons why I love Italian horror film directors, like Fulci, as another example. Bruno Mattai, who was just... Bruno Mattai was a... I mean, he was a, a, a schlep with the stuff that he did, but it's still wonderful. Hell of the Living Dead, it's great. It's great in its schlockiness, you know? The thing I love about Bruno Mattei, and I've seen him do it in even his later films, like right before he died, he did a movie called The Tomb, and I'm watching it, and I'm like, he literally stole shots directly from the Brendan Fraser mummy movie and we'll put them in right. his movie. Yeah. And I'm yeah. he just stole stuff. He didn't care. He would make a, he'd make a RoboCop rip off and call it, you, you know, like, uh, I forget all the titles, but he, yeah. he would literally just lift the script from alien and make a Terminator movie out of it. Yeah, Joe, Joe D'Amato made a, a shark movie. Uh, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but, um, cause he's like, he's like just Franco. He's got Bruno, I think did the one, uh, what was it? Cruel Jaws, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> which some people call Jaws Five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I love I love all that stuff. I, I think I love it because two reasons. First reason that I love uh, '70s horror uh, uh, and especially European horror more than than any other is just that it reminds me of a time uh, that doesn't exist anymore, and the kinds of films that were made can't be made anymore. Another big person that I adore is Paul Nashi. I love Paul Nashi. No, just, you know, the, just the Wildemir Daninsky cycle. I, and, you know, when I was a kid, they used to run, you know, uh, Paul Nashi movies on the creature features. Right. You Werewolf of the Vampire this. Woman, stuff like you that. You see these like, you know, and of course they would be edited, but they were still fucked up even though they weren't edited. He wasn't a werewolf like like Lon Chaney. I mean, he's biting people, ripping them apart. He's covered in blood and he's fucking crazed. He's a lunatic in Frankenstein's bloody terror. He's unbelievable in that thing, you know? And as a kid, I was like, you know. So, yeah, so Paul Nash is another one that I love. What a great filmmaker. What an incredible body of work. I'm friends with both his kids. Oh, really? That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, because he, he really is underrated. Um just he's his contributions. His Bro, he's getting his due. Yeah, they uh, made that documentary about him. Uh, the man who saw Frankenstein cry, I think, was the title of it. But yeah, he has gotten his due lately. I think even like Guillermo del Toro has name checked him. Uh, you know. Well, yeah, he used, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, Benicio del Toro, when he played the Wolfman, was doing a little bit of Nashi, as well as Oliver Reed and some Cheney as well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, wow, just <laughs> Nash, Paul Nashy, I love, I love Paul Nashy. And I love the women. All of the Spanish women are gorgeous. They're gorgeous. Women don't look like that anymore. They don't look like Spanish seventies women, you know? Uh, and I, I, you know what I'm talking about. They just was something about them. That's just unbelievably incredible. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I'm a very big fan of Giallo. I love Giallo films from Italy. You know, the the Giallo are, I mean, that's what I, I get into Jags. You ever get into that, you know, where all of a sudden it's like, hey, I feel like just watching Giallo films for a week. 
Right, you right. Know. You're just going to, you know, marathon. Well, I'm going to yeah. just watch Universal Horror Movies for a week, get it all done, you know. So I, I got to ask, uh, what was your first Bruno Mattei movie? Because I'll tell you mine. Mine was Rat's Night of Terror. And it's, <laughs> it's such an insane movie because it's like this post-apocalyptic movie. And then you have the twist ending. And I'm just like, wow, this dude is wild, man. So wh- where was you, what was your first uh, experience well, with the man that's been called I'm, the Italian Ed Wood? I'm looking in the book here. My first, because I wrote about it. My first Bruno Mattei film was The Other Hell, which is a... That's the non-sploitation movie? Which is a non-sploitation movie unlike any other on this earth. So let me read you a little bit of what I say about it, because I want the audience to understand just how fucked up Bruno Mattei is. I started it off with 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 capital letters, blasphemy made flesh. There is no other movie on Earth like the other hell, an Italian non-sploitation cinematic horror masterpiece and an abomination. This film is more than just disturbing. It's unholy. (laughs) I spent the entire 88 minutes of this film with my mouth agape and eyes boggled. As a true horror fan, I'm always interested to see how filmmakers plan on taking us from the, on taking us for the ride. Well, my friends, I had no idea what a hellacious, bombastic, wonderful, sick ride it was going to be. So, Yeah. So the other, have you ever seen the other hell? I have not seen the other hell. I need to dive more into non-sploitation. You're looking at me right now. You're disappointed. <laughs> well, there's a chapter in the book about non-sploitation films, bro. Read it. Uh, hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other hell. <laughs> I, I don't even want to tell you because the beginning of the movie is so from another universe that you just you just can't believe what you're looking at. You can't believe what you're looking at. I'm dying to tell you. Were, were you a fan, by the way, of, uh, I know they just released uh, like an entire 24 film set of it, uh, the Joe D'Amato uh, Black Emanuel movies, because Laura oh, Gemser, who has oh, a teenager, I was oh, like, oh my God, God. Laura Gemser. Oh, you know? yes, yes, yes. Laura Gemser, hello. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and two of them are in really masterpieces. Uh, Emmanuel in America mm-hmm. and Emmanuel and the Cannibals. You know, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibal. Right. I was going to, yeah, yeah. Who the fuck takes a softcore? genre and mix it with cannibal movies and he also did that with zombies he made a movie called porno holocaust which is a pornographic zombie movie where the woman is sucking the zombies cock on the beach it's crazy insane so i gotta ask I feel so weird saying that, you know. <laughs> I look at I look at these shows that you do. You do shows about 
world issues and right don't you do shows about i i do do that but i love these movies you know but you don't but most of your shows are about what's going on in the world and all this, you know and, and all this like important news and all this stuff and now you're talking to some old bastard like me who's going yeah she's sucking the zombie's cock on the beat it's a great thing trust me i i need a break from the world events at this right? point with all the chaos but i gotta I ask have so- the best zombies my zombie, they're the best. We're going to talk about my zombies. My zombies suck the best cock. They're the best. Nobody does it like my zombie. It's a good, that's a good Trump impersonation. <laughs> so I just want to throw a little politics in there. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Uh, so, it, you know, you said you were into the the, the Spanish uh, women in these movies. I'll tell you, oh. my first, my first screen crush was, so I had a video store that uh, I would always go to in Pittsburgh called Incredibly Strange Video. And they specialized only in these cult movies. Wonderful, so one day, wonderful title. Yeah, one day I pick up Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. And the, the better title of that is its alternate title, which was Sturbo, Werewolf Bitch. And of course, Sybil <laughs> Danning's in it. My dad would always be like, you have to close your eyes during the sex scenes. Well, you know what? You can't do that with Alan, too, because in the end credits, they show her ripping off her you know, shirt multiple times. So Sybil times. Danning was your Sybil Danning? Was yeah, your Sybil first? Danning, I was going to say. I don't know if I mentioned it, but Sybil Danning was my first like, oh, my God, that's what a woman looks like. you know. I actually talk about um, the same thing uh, in my book. Because uh, when I was younger, the first horror chick that I really dug was Julie Adams in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, she was gorgeous in that movie. With that white bathing suit. And, you know, and then the creature grabs her and it's like, what's he going to do with her? You know, Uh, and uh, I interviewed her. And uh, this was I had interviewed her in the late 90s, but the full interview had never been published. So it's in the book. And she looked so beautiful. You know, I think I was in my middle 30s and she might have been in her middle 60s, but she looked so beautiful. And I kept thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could just go right up to our hotel room and I could live the fantasy? You know? <laughs> I'm so looking was- right at her. I'm looking right at her. Like, oh my God, it's Julie Adams from the, the love of my life, you know? So Julie Adams was your awakening. Mine well, she was, was the first. She was the first one where I said, "Wait a minute," you know. And that's why I've always been into, you know, uh, women that are like carried by the monster, or women that are like under in peril. Because when I was younger, I, I didn't make the connection per se that there's a sexual connotation added to that. I mean, what's this monster going to do with this girl he's got in his arms? You know, that's left up to the imagination. So, uh, you know, of course, the creature, I mean, he grabs her and drags her down into this grotto. I mean, like it's very highly sexually charged film, especially when she's swimming on the top and he's on the bottom. It's like sex underwater. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, you yeah. know, but I but I but I, I run the gamut, you know, I run the gamut of all of them. And I, I also You're an Edwidge Fenich fan. Oh, who isn't? <laughs> She's incredible. Well, Jallo, she's the Jallo queen, man. She's the Jallo queen. 
she was also very big in comedies. A lot of these comedies. She was like a comedy actress. That That's the weird thing because you look at guys like Fulci. People know about Fulci's movies like The Beyond and I love The Beyond and I love all those movies. People forget he was doing Italian sex comedies before he did all the horror movies. All those guys, all those guys, they were doing sex comedies. They were doing crime Westerns. comedies. They were doing Westerns. They were, they did everything, man. It's a, it's an absolutely astonishingly wonderful, marvelous period in film history. And I love it. I love it all. So when you were growing up, were you a monster kid? Did you grow up on like the old uh, American International Pictures stuff? All of that stuff. Can you talk about what it was like growing up on those movies? Well, um, like you have a TV horror host or anything where you were growing up oh, or yeah. Oh yeah. Zachary. Okay. Yeah. 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 The cool ghoul Zachary. Uh, uh, there was another guy that was on channel five creature features. Um, yeah, I actually on my, um, YouTube channel, I did a little film about the first horror film I ever saw, which was Frankenstein. So I don't know. I I guess you're going to put some information up so people can go and check things out uh, on those channels. But, uh, I, you know, I did this whole thing about Frankenstein and how it frightened me and what it meant to me. And Frankenstein was the beginning of my love of horror. That's where it started. And then it just took off from there. It just took off from there. What was it about uh, Frankenstein? Because the scene that always stuck in my head is uh he's playing with the little girl sorry about that i should have shut my phone i apologize oh it's all good it's all good but uh the scene that always stuck out for me is you know Karloff is the creature is playing with the little girl and he doesn't know any better he throws her into the pond she drowns you know that 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 for some reason i will always remember that scene so i, I was saying the thing that stuck out for me with uh frankenstein was the scene between boris Karloff as the creature and the little girl and he throws her into the pond and he doesn't know any better. You always, it's such a weird movie because you always feel bad for the creature. There's a beautiful Spanish film that was made uh, uh, called the spirit of the beehive. And uh, it's uh, uh, a story about a little girl who sees the movie Frankenstein and becomes obsessed with the monster and sees the monster everywhere. And, uh it's just it's it's considered a, an absolute classic of world cinema the spirit of the beehive uh and uh you know because the director was so touched by that scene as most people are and you know karloff didn't want the shot of him throwing the girl in the water that was something that they did but he didn't want that and for many years it was edited where he looks at the flowers in the water and then he just goes. And that's all you see. And then the next thing you see is the father carrying her dead. So you didn't see her. And I don't even think you need to see him throw her in. That was more powerful because it left things to the imagination, you know. Uh, but uh, so that was one scene that was cut. And then another was when the creature comes alive. And he's going, it's alive, it's alive. He says, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. They cut that. Did you know about that? No, I didn't realize that. When you see the film, if you ever see it again, and that scene comes up, that used to be a cut. 
It would be like, it's alive, it's alive. And then there'd be like a cut in the film and he would just be like, oh, and they'd be holding it. But that whole line, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. That's pretty heavy duty shit for 1931. Well, I was going to say, one of the things about those older movies is you have that whole pre-code era. And it's like, you watch something like Edgar G. Ulmer's The Black Cat or the Bela Lugosi starring uh, murders in the room morgue. You're oh, like, they're incredible. They're incredible. Well, how did they get away with it? They're doing, there's like, because there was no masochism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my yeah. God, in, in the black cat, you've got necrophilia and pedophilia. I mean, all those women are dead. And he's screwing the daughter of his dead wife. I mean, it's, that's an incredible movie. The Black Cat is absolutely, without any doubt, it is the best Karloff Lagos. The thing movie. is, that movie for me to this day, it still holds up. I don't it, like it. There's some older movies that just for me personally, I watch the classics. I love them, but sometimes it can they, they feel longer than they are just because I'm used to the pacing that has come about since you know the 70s. And I know there's younger people now that when I recommend a 70s movie, they'll say I can't keep up with the pacing of this. It's too slow. But like that movie, The Black Cat, it still feels to me as fresh today, you know, yeah, every that, time I you watch know, it. That, uh, that was also based on, Karloff's character was based on Aleister Crowley. You really? Know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it was based on Aleister Crowley, the, uh, the Great Beast 666, the meanest man in the world, as he was known. So I have to ask, uh, you know, I grew up in a weird way on um, since I had this incredibly strange video store, the movies that I would rent the most. And I also watched them because they were always on AMC, you know, American movie classics on the weekends. Right. Is I would always watch The Hammer and even more so the Amicus horror movies. And I, I'm going to yes. say something sacrilegious here. I actually prefer some of the Amicus stuff to well, some of the Hammer stuff. Some of the Amicus stuff is incredible. You know, I mean, I was 12 years old and I saw Tales from the Crypt uh, in the drive-in. I saw Asylum at the drive-in. Asylum scared the living shit out Asylum of me. Asylum is amazing. Also, my introduction to Britt Eklund. So. <laughs> yeah. Asylum scared the living shit out of me. When they step on the puppets and they show the, the guts, that scared the fuck out of me. And Tales from the Crypt is, is magnificent. It's well, just magnificent. That, that the Joan Collins scene, the, the Joan Collins segment alone to me, you know, the Christmas segment is just astounding. You yeah, know? And, and of course, you did know better than Joan Collins in that and, role. And it's also, I, I, a lot of people would argue that um, it's Peter Cushing's greatest performance. That's, as so Arthur that Grimsdyke, as Arthur Grimsdyke. Where he's the, he's the sad old man that just wants to be friendly with the, the kids and whatnot. And the parents ruin him, right? Yeah, he commits suicide. It's devastating watching that. And then his corpse comes back. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Scared the flying fuck out of me when I was a kid. So when I watch it today, I just love it because it reminds me of the first time I saw it, which is a lot of what that's about, you know? Same thing with the Hammer Horror movies. I never was really, I never was really frightened by any of the other films. I was a little frightened by uh, The Invisible Man. Because the Invisible Man is hardcore, you know. Claude Rains is hardcore, you know. You know, he's just so insane, you know. Another experiment ruined. 
foolish idiot woman. You know, I mean, I mean he's, he's just, oh, I love him. He's right here. Very nice. I dig it. Still the still the best invisible man. Life, right? Uh, but yeah, you know, that stuff. Pause, folks, for the drop toy. Now I'm getting, I don't know what. Oh, I see. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the Universal films, the Frankenstein is the one that got me the most. Without any doubt, Frankenstein got me the most. Because the other ones were very, you know, I don't know how to put it. I mean, the mummy, you didn't really see the mummy that much in the Karloff one. He's only in the beginning. Uh, and uh, the Wolfman is, is really great, but it never really scared me, you know. Uh, but they're wonderful. I love them all. I love every damn one of them. Every one of them. Love them. They're in my DNA. As you can see. Yeah, I love the, the Rock and the Frankenstein shirt. I was going to yeah, say with the, with the anthology horror, you know, I think what I love about those amicus anthologies is uh, they're kind of cathartic when you're like, you, when you're having a bad day. And like someone has screwed you over, you just pop on like an amicus movie or sometimes, you know, I'll even pop on uh, something like whatever happened to baby Jane. You see, there's something about those movies are kind of sadistic. And if you're yeah, in a bad mood, yeah. they, there's something cathartic about those movies, especially the horror anthologies, because, well, you know, well, you see the bad people of, get what they deserve. <laughs> horror in and of itself is cathartic, JG. Horror is cathartic. That's the whole point, you know? Why do you love horror movies? You know, why? Well, why Why would anybody want to be scared? Why would anybody want to see such horrible things? Why would someone want to see someone's head chopped off? Why would somebody want to see someone eviscerated? Why would someone want to, you know, whatever? Why? Why? Well, I always make the analogy, has you ever been on a roller coaster? Yeah. yeah you like roller coasters? Yeah. What do you like oh, yeah. about the roller coaster? Well, it's a release, isn't it? You're on this thing that could kill you. So you ride this thing, and it has killed people. Roller coasters have killed people. So you're taking a calculated risk when you get on a roller coaster, you know? And you scream at the top of your lungs. You scream bloody murder. And then when it's over, it's like this unbelievable release of, of energy. And, and, well, you had a cathartic experience. You went through something that could have killed you, and you came out the other end. Well, that's what horror is. You're looking at people getting killed and mutilated or or not that all horror films are killed and mutilated, but you're looking at things that in the end, the credits are going to say the end and it's going to be a movie. It's not going to be your life, but you can live vicariously through it. And I don't know why uh, I jive to it so deeply. I think I think if I had to really think about it, it's the cathartic nature of it, number one, horror movies. And then the other thing is they're just so much fun. They're fun. You know, like uh, recently, uh, those the, the last three Halloween films that they made. Now, I, bro, the first Halloween is the way to go. Everything else after that, although there are a lot of people that love Season of the Witch, but that wasn't really like Halloween. But these recent ones... Uh, they beat you over the head. I, I was had not a fan of They that. had their moments. I wouldn't say they were great. But one thing in Halloween Kills, when he comes out of the burning building, 
And Michael Myers is standing there. And the way the mask got burnt, I thought, was really fucked up. And he's standing there. You know, there's actually a toy that that's of Michael Myers standing behind a building on fire, you know. And as if that wasn't an unbelievable enough image, then he goes about and he kills the entire fire department. He kills, he kills the entire fire department. Now, again, you think, oh, well, that's going over the top. That's but that was the one time where I was like, yeah, all right. You know, <laughs> why would I want to see the fire department killed? You know, they're there to help you, you know. It's just um, very cathartic. It's seeing the unseeable. It's the act of seeing with one's own eyes, you know? Uh, another reason why my favorite film is Zombie. Zombie is always going to be my number one horror movie because when I saw it, I had never seen anything like it in my life. I'll tell you this. With Zombie, I will always... I just I was have never just seen watching. anything like it. And to this no, day... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it broke up for a second. I'm here. Okay. You were saying you've never seen anything like it? Never I, seen I, anything like it, no. No, I, I was going to say, I mean, I recently rewatched that when uh, Joe Bob Briggs and Darcy on Shutter showed it. And uh, it had been a while, but it still gets me, that scene where the zombies are breaking in. And that chick, you know, they they pull her head towards the splinter, you know. And I don't know what it is, but ocular horror, anything involving eyeballs, freaks yeah, me the fuck Lucio out. Fulci loved ocular horror. He always had, he has a lot of eyeball scenes. Um, and then, of course, when they come back and they find her being eaten by the zombies, that's pretty fucked up, too. Right from the very beginning, it's just astonishing all the way through. I love it to death. I truly love that film. And where else on earth will you ever see a zombie fight a real shark? I mean, underwater, a zombie fighting a shark. And the shark rips the zombie's arm off. And it's a real shark. No bullshit. I was going to say, I've heard before, and I wanted to get into this, because I feel like, in a weird way, horror movies are like, horror movie filmmakers are like the ultimate rebels. They're like renegades. Like, Fulci, when he made Zombie, I don't think he had a permit for the finale with the zombies, zombies no, ambling across the bridge. No, he did not. They went there early in the morning and shot that. Yep. That's true. Really? Okay. okay. Just like there's... they didn't have a permit to shoot on the Hudson Bay either. That That's what I love, though, about these films. You know that these guys got down and dirty when they made they these films. They didn't necessarily follow all the rules, but they made some good shit. They were, they were mavericks. They were mavericks. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I really do truly love all of that. But, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote my book was because I wanted to write something that would turn horror movie fans on to films that maybe they never, ever saw before or never thought about before. I mean, I talk about a lot of the classics. Of course, you have to because it's a movie about the cinema of the macabre. But I spend a great deal of time talking about stuff off the beaten trail or certainly a lot of the Euro horror. And I also talk about a lot of movies today that I think are doing, there's some really incredible horror films. Like, you know, for me, some of the ones that really stick out are first of all, Heredity. Hereditary I thought was unbelievable. And then I loved Midsummer or Midsummer, however people want to say it. I loved those two. Uh, that's Ari Aster. And then um, Robert Eggers, I love The Witch. 
And I really love The Lighthouse. Uh, there's a Japanese horror film called The Sadness. Have you seen that on Shudder? I have not yet. Dude, when you get off this fucking podcast, if you got nothing to do, I want you to watch The Sadness. All right? Promise me that if you got okay, nothing okay, to do you got- and you're ready to watch a movie and you've got Shudder, I want you to watch The Sadness. It is one of the greatest zombie films I have ever seen. And it was made during the pandemic, which is even more astonishing because it is about a virus that causes the zombies. Okay. Wow. And the zombies are mostly attracted to killing their loved ones. Ooh. Which was which was something that Jean Roland uh, uh, worked with in uh, Grapes of Death. Same thing. I mean, there's a scene where there's a guy... He, he's got this woman that he loves. She's like strapped to this door and he's got this ax and he goes, I love it. Thanks for head off. What I are, love you. <laughs> what are your favorite, and I know you mentioned a few of them in the book, but what are your favorite uh, sort of, maybe we could take turns talking about some of our favorite obscurities, uh, hidden gems of horror, uh, especially that, that 70s period. Oh my God, there's period. so many, bro. Oh my God, there's so many. What's some of my favorite? Well, I'm going to have to cheat and look in the book so that I could remember because I've written about so many of them. I'll uh, tell you one while you're looking. One that scared me as a kid, and I, I know you you may think this is silly, but because he's made a lot of bad movies, but only Lamel, after he was done working with Andy Warhol, and uh, Fastbinder, when he made The Boogeyman, I saw that movie when I was like 12 years old, and it just opens with all this weird psychosexual shit and abusive kids. And and then you have like a killer that is traveling through mirrors. And it goes from being a Halloween knockoff with like art house qualities to an exorcism movie. And for some reason, that movie scared the living shit out of me yeah. when I was 12. It scared me so much that I actually turned it off halfway through. This is like an invisible <laughs> killer, you know? But, and you know, people will say to me, is it really that good? And I'm like, well, part of it is just when I grew up. You know, it's one of those movies. I think a lot of times there are certain movies that they may not be the best, but there's something about when you saw them. Well, you know, like this is really crappy movie. It really is a crappy movie, honestly, but people love it called The Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Alan Ormsby. Right. And it's just a, it, it's, it's hard to watch now because it's so like hippie seventies. I mean, like it's really, but it has its moments, but at the time back in the day, that movie scared the shit out of me. You know, uh, some of the movies I have in here, uh, there's a movie called Devil's Story. Do you know Devil's Story? No, is that a Hong Kong one or? No, 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 no. It's, uh, I don't even know the country of origin. I think it's, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's French. Okay. It's like a Jean Roland film on acid. It's (laughs) really weird. Devil's Story is one of them. Uh, uh, 
we are the flesh is another one very transgressive and powerful horror film uh evil dead trap i know evil dead trap yes that's a really really great japanese horror you know Uh, damon packer's reflections of evil I've been meaning to dig into Damon Packard's stuff. He's a very uh, unusual, uh, he's sort of an experimental filmmaker. I love him, love him. But, but Reflections of Evil is like, unlike anything you've ever what, seen. What is it about that movie in particular? The utter and complete insanity of it. I wrote I wrote in, in uh, the, the first few sentences, I wrote about it in the book. They're all in capitals. A stat- yeah, I saw you had the, the poster as one of the pictures in the book. There it is, folks. A staggering, indescribable film experience of epic proportions, reflections of evil, holy fucking shitballs, God's holy trousers. It's, I, I wrote, this This is an experience that will change you. You know? So there's a, there's a couple for you anyway. Reflections of evil, unbelievable. Island of Death, another crazy, sick movie. That's uh, Greece, right? Nico Masterakis, right? You're right. Okay. Look at that. Um, well, this is this this is kind of not considered necessarily obscure, but it's like people think well, might think it's a knockoff, but in actuality, it's one of the greatest revenge films I have ever ever seen, and that's uh, I Spit on Your Grave Two. Okay. From 2013, it is devastating, and it's so good. My friend Art Edinger is a very big I know Art, Ultraviolet Magazine, yeah. Yes, Art, Art's a very big I Spit on Your Grave guy. He wrote a chapter in my book about all the I Spit on Your Grave movies. And we're both, we're both in agreement that that's just like, that's a high watermark. And most people wouldn't think of that. As I spit on your grave too, who cares, you know? I'll admit something on here uh, because I've had arguments with people about the original I Spit on Your Grave. I love that movie. Me I too. love the original I Spit on Your Grave. And people will say, how can you want to watch, you know, the just what's done to Camille Keaton's character in it? And it's weird for me because I'll be honest, I kind of have blocked that out of my head. What I love about that movie is her revenge against everyone. Like, again, oh. it's very cathartic to see what she does to those assholes. Right. And that's what it's all about. Revenge is a dish better served cold. And uh, I spit on your grave too. The revenge is, the revenge in I spit on your grave too makes the revenge in the original I spit on your grave look like the Wizard of Oz, you know, or Laurel and Hardy short. I mean, it's like, the it's unbelievable what this woman ends up doing, especially because of what they what they did to her. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's a few good ones like that. Um, I'm a big Abel Ferrara fan, so oh. Miss Forty Five is incredible for me. Miss Forty Five, Body Snatchers, the, the body, his Body Snatchers is really underrated. It's fantastic, and it takes right off of the Phil Kaufman one too. It's the same, same thing, and uh, uh, and of course the addicted, the addiction, the addiction. Excuse right, me. the black and white vampire junkie movie. Yeah, yeah it, uh, you know. I even have I I have a soft spot for his Taxi Driver ripoff Triller Killer. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christopher Walken. 
is in yeah. the plays a vampire. Yeah, he's great in the addiction. He's great yeah. in it. He's great in it. So listen, I I have only a few minutes now. So okay, uh, where do you want to go? Well, I guess uh, just in closing, what do you think makes the horror genre the genre that you keep coming back to? Because it's fun. Because it's fun. Because it's cathartic. Because it's the act of seeing with one own eyes. It's because you get to see things that you would never really see in reality. Because it's amazing to see what can be done. Like, I'm a very big lover of practical effects. You know, I'm not a big CGI guy. So, you know, a movie like John Carpenter's The Thing is like right up there in my top five greatest films ever made. Because Rob Bottin did an astonishing absolutely astonishing job with that film you know and the, the special effects in that are unlike anything that's one of the reasons why i like um um uh, the art uh, art the clown films the uh, the terrifier films. i love you know what i love because Damien leone too. does not only does he direct them but he also uh what do you call it he also does all the effects i did not that know writes, that he yeah. does all the effects I, I, I have to say this. I I saw Terrifier 2 in theaters, and that's the most fun I've had at a theater in a long time. And people, people will say to me, oh, it's just a gore fest. That movie is the – that's a weird movie. It's a fun gore fest. Yeah, well, not just that, but it has, like, some weird David Lynch stuff going. It's very surreal. It's very strange, and well, I can't wait for three, but I still think Terrifier is the best. I the have best. to ask you one last question. Uh, you've met Dario Argento. So yes. what, what was your experience with Dario like? Say that again. I'm sorry. Well, I was, uh, what was your experience talking to Dario? What did you glean from him? Well, you know, I met Dario Argento uh, right after opera had come out. And um, he came to Albany for the Fantico convention, which I was involved in because I wasn't only a guest, but, you know, I write for them. So, uh, I ran a few panels with Dario, had dinner with Dario, hung out with Dario. And, and, and you know, he didn't speak English very well, but he spoke it well enough to have a conversation with him. And I just felt like I was in the presence of, you know, one of the world's greatest filmmakers. And he was extremely humble and extremely nice and extremely real, you know, he was very genuinely real. Um, on YouTube, uh, there's uh, uh, the interview I did with him is on YouTube. And it was so cool because we did it behind a theater where there's like this curtain and I'm sitting and I'm talking to him behind this curtain, which kind of reminded me of opera, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, and I just recently wrote something on my Facebook page where a lot of people talk about this. It's like, after opera, that's it for me. Dario just, he just... That's it. You know, there's some people that say, oh, Stendhal syndrome. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I'll admit it. I I actually really liked uh, Dark Glasses. Is Dark Glasses Suspiria? Is Dark Glasses okay, Tenebrae? Is Dark Glasses The Bird with the Crystal Plumage? Is Dark Glasses Opera? Is Dark Glasses, you know, uh, Inferno? Is I mean, you know, no. No, it's not. It's watered down Dario. Nothing wrong with loving it. God bless you. I 
I never knock anybody for loving anything. I think that's stupid. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's people who, that sucks. You know what sucks? Fuck you, dude. It sucks. <laughs> you go out and make a movie, motherfucker. You know? It's not that it sucks. You, It's not, you don't like it. It's not your taste. That's great. It doesn't mean it universally sucks for the universe because you don't like right. it. So I want to let you get going, but uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work and how can they get a copy of uh, Cinema Macabre and also your book, well, The Horror of uh, the Horror? Well, what I would do is uh, I can give you, I will give you the addresses and stuff. One thing, one thing uh, listeners can do is they could join my Facebook page and they are on the Facebook page. They can instant messenger me. And if they'd like a signed copy of the book, I can... I'd be happy to do that. I charge the same amount as Amazon does for it. So it's not, you know, I don't charge for the signature or anything. Uh, the book is $30, but it's also on Amazon.com. Uh, and, you know, Amazon sucks. It's so hard to find things on Amazon. You know, you could type in my name, Dennis Daniel, and the book won't come up. You have to scroll down. You have to make the thing scroll down to books. Then it'll, it's, you know, but it's on Amazon. It's available at Fantico.net which is a great place to get it. And it's also available at Forbidden Planet NYC or FBNYC. Uh, I'm going to be at Forbidden Planet this coming Saturday, as a matter of fact, to do a book signing and a magazine signing. Uh, it's from uh, five to seven at Forbidden Planet on Broadway in New York City. And there's gonna be a, a costume contest, which is really cool. So if you could, I don't know if this will be airing before then or not, but uh, that's something cool that I got going on. Then there's my uh, new magazine called Cinema Macabre, which is also published by uh, Fantico, which is in, which is basically my book continued. Because the book could have, we contracted for a book that was 300 pages, but I had so much more to say. And so did a lot of other writers and stuff that, that I have like a guest section in my book, as you may know. So that magazine's a community continuation of that once again fantico.net would be the best place it's also available at uh forbidden planet fbnyc.net or com i think and uh all you gotta do is look up forbidden planet new york you know put that in google and then i have a uh uh youtube channel where i do movie reviews it's called cinema macabre dd reviews so if you just go into the search engine of YouTube and type in Cinema Macabre, Macabre is M-A-C-A-B-R-E, Cinema Macabre, DD Reviews, it'll pop up. I'm putting a film together based on the book, so I'm like putting scenes from the film on there, and I'm also doing movie reviews and stuff there. And, uh, you know, still writing for Deep Red, still writing for, uh, uh, for a Delirium, which I love writing for. Uh, I have a column in there called The Blood is the Life. And, uh, you know, I'm around. <laughs> well, thanks I had like a renaissance in my in my career, you know? It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, you were away for a while and then you I came back anything, I didn't do anything for a while, but in about 2013, I got interviewed by John Spoonar for a book called Xerox Ferox, where it's a book about all the people that wrote for all the fanzines and magazines in the 80s and stuff. And he told me that I was his favorite writer. And I did this great interview with him, and that got my whole thing going again. And then they restarted Deep Red again. We're on the fourth issue of, of the new version of Deep Red. So there's a lot of good stuff. I'll give you all that stuff so you could post it. 
Well, hey, thanks again, Dennis Daniel, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dennis Daniel and that you'll check out his book, The Horror, The Horror, a film fanatic's obsession with the cinema of the macabre. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.